Hello and welcome to This Is Property. You're with John Pigeon going solo today, answering a lot of your questions. So thank you once again for putting them in the Facebook group. Thanks for reaching out in general. Thanks for supporting this wonderful podcast. As you realize, we've had a name change for those reliable listeners over the years. And so nice and refreshed, ready to get into things. So I'm going to talk about negative equity today, uh, leveraging existing properties to borrow more money from the bank. Uh, I've got a listener question that's directed to me around using more equity and building a portfolio and you know we've had a few listener stories on of recent so hope you've found them enjoyable as well but uh, let's crack into this solo. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, before we get into the Q&A, an interesting article came out this week from Eliza Owen, who we've had on the show numerous times, head of research for CoreLogic in Australia. And she talks about if housing markets are so undersupplied around the country, which we know they are, why are some markets falling in value? And it refers to the particular property markets in Melbourne. So in 2023, House prices actually went backwards. Now, when I say house prices, it's generalized to say houses, units, apartments, etc. So you have to dig into the weeds to see which assets actually performed better than others and worse than others, etc. But generally speaking, over the average of Melbourne property, uh, there was some negative growth. She talks about the fact that by 2028, there'll be a 100,000 dwelling shortfall across Australia. Now, we've spoken about this on the show before, and that's a lot of houses, and we know that there's a lot more needs to be done to be able to build more houses to avoid this rental crisis that we're going through. There's people literally living on the streets that are in full-time employment, uh, but just can't make ends meet. So she goes on to say, whether or not housing looks attractive to buyers and asset is different to needing somewhere to live. So the case of, okay, I just need somewhere, I need a roof over my head at night and I'm going to rent somewhere in a location that I can afford, right? That is a necessity in life versus an investor saying, well, I, I don't think that property is, is priced well or there needs to be too much work done to it or I can't afford that or um, comparable sales suggest that it's, uh, it's too expensive. I'm going to let, let that one go that's when we start to experience some sort of negative growth, especially if a market is overinflated, which the Melbourne market in a lot of cases has come from an area in the last two to three years where we've had pretty consistent growth. And now investors and owner occupiers or upsizers, which are a common type of buyer, are saying to themselves, yeah, generally speaking, we don't think that property is worth it. Coupled with the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty in people's lives, the cost of living, the interest rate rises what we've had in the last 12 to 18 months, uh, basically means that they've been sitting on their hands. Now, does that mean there's an oversupply of properties? Not necessarily. There's just not 
buyers prepared to buy something at the price that someone wants to sell it for, okay? So really understand the difference between an oversupplied market and the ability to get growth out of a certain asset that you're looking to buy, okay? So we look at Melbourne as a capital city and say it's the largest city in Australia for international migration. More people are moving from overseas into Melbourne than any other area in Australia. Population growth in Melbourne is likely to have increased markedly in 2023, uh, Eliza says, with the cities historically attracting around 30% of the country's net overseas migration, according to the ABS regional population data. Vacancy rates were less than 1%. So from a tenancy point of view, you know that if you had a property, you would absolutely get it rented because there is an undersupply of properties to be able to go and rent which is the issue, the 100,000 that's going to be shortfall in 2028. But if you're going to buy a property, it's a very different story. So understand as an investor and understand as an owner-occupier or a first-time buyer of a property what something's going to be worth and the general heat of the market, how long it's been sitting on the market and potential discounts there. We look at Melbourne today and know that in some areas we can go and get some sort of discount while other markets or other areas, other locations and definitely other uh, different types of assets where we're seeing a very warm market where properties are listed one day and within seven to 10 days they're gone if they're priced right and they're a dwelling that is in demand. Okay, so I just thought I'd share that with you. We'll put the link in the show notes from Eliza. She's very respected in the industry, has been for a number of years and, uh, and is a, a very intelligent guest of ours coming on the show. Not that anyone else isn't, by the way. All right, let's get into some other questions. So Sam reached out and said, hi team, have a question for John around using equity to purchase second home. I've re-listened to some of the previous podcasts and still have some questions, particularly around whether it is a bad idea to draw down equity for the purpose of buying a second home, which will become our PPOR and converting PPOR to investment property. Currently have a three bed, two bath house in Ipswich, which is south of Brisbane on 800 square meters Purchased five years ago for 360, 260 currently owing, and house sitting around 700k in value. Right, so we've purchased it for 360. It's now worth 700. Fantastic! In five years, it's it's more or less doubled. So well done. We have about 60k in savings with both myself and my partner's incomes steadily increasing around 220 gross annually, and no consumer debts. Okay, well done again on the consumer debt part. What are the cons of using the equity? to purchase new PPOR and would it be better to just stay in our PPOR and purchase for the sole purpose of an investment property? Ideally, we'd like a bigger house to cater for our hopefully soon to be expanding family over the next few years. No dependents currently. Love the podcast. Can't wait for the book to come out. So uh, an organic plug on the book there as well. Show notes will provide you a link to our book, which we're pretty excited about. Now, Sam, great question. And if I had a dollar for every conversation I had around this topic, uh, I'd be probably doing better than I am today. So first of all, we've got to understand Sam's situation. And if you're thinking, yeah, I'm in a similar boat, then think about your own situation. Now, Sam says that they are wanting to start a family and need a bigger home. So there's a conversation of lifestyle versus 
the conversation around finance structure and tax deductibility and wealth creation. And sometimes the two can murk into each other and sometimes they can be wild apart and very different from each other. Now, we've got to understand which one's more important, which one's more important to us now, but then go out 10 years, 12 years and say, look, where am I going to be? What am I going to be doing? Am I likely to have kids? Am I still working this same job? Is there going to be one income or two incomes? Is the income growing as a result of me being in the same industry for years, et cetera, et cetera? Ask and answer as many questions as you can for yourself to get a, a really clear picture of the next 10 to 12 years. I was talking to someone earlier this week about this exact same thing. Their kids are teenagers. They've got roughly about four to five years worth of schooling. And then the area that they're living in is no longer relevant because of the school that they're going to. I said, look, in five years time, 10 years time, where do you want to be living? Well, we want to be living closer to the beach. Okay, great. So why don't we move there now? Uh, well, our kids' schooling is, uh, is important to us and we want to be close to the school. Okay, so we're going to sell the home we're living in now and we're going to buy and upgrade a house. We need more space to live in that same area. But in five years' time, we're actually wanting to move closer to the beach. So we've got two lots of stamp duty and two lots of selling costs, right? It just doesn't make sense to us. So we've got to go out 10 years and say, where do we want to be? Can we commute or can we drive our kids to school for the next three or four years? If that's possible, fantastic. If we've got a long-term view of it, we may just save ourselves $100,000 in stamp duty and selling costs uh, as a result of that. So for Sam, there's the lifestyle component, but there's also the fact that we're using equity to buy our principal place of residence. Now, you've heard me say on the show quite often that I don't like to use equity to buy or, or to use as a deposit and, and costs for our principal place of residence. Why not? Because we've got a, about 102 to 103% of our value of our property being debt, right? So we're paying interest on all of that debt versus if we put in a 20% cash deposit, we would only have 80% of our total value of the property as debt. And as we say, the debt on our owner-occupier home is generally bad debt. It's non-tax deductible. So when we're sitting down with our accountant and we're looking at tax deductibility, we've gone and taken the equity from Ipswich, in Sam's case, we've used it for our dream home, which is fantastic. We've ticked the lifestyle box, but we definitely haven't ticked the tax deductibility bad debt box. And we just may be paying that off longer for a longer period than we would like. Now, what's Sam's option if, if they don't want to go with this? Well, option two is to say, look, I've had some fantastic growth from Ipswich. I could sell that property. I could take my 300000 or thereabouts after costs, capital gains tax-free because I lived in it, and I can go and use that as a deposit and costs on my upgrader home. Fantastic. However, I've lost an asset in the time being, and from what I'm hearing here with Sam, Sam would like to have or build a portfolio and keep two properties where possible. So Sam says, why can't I look at option three, which is go and buy an investment property instead. That way the equity we pull out is tax deductible because we're using it for income producing purposes and we can go and build a portfolio that way. Tick. However, not a tick in the box of lifestyle because we need a bigger home, we're going to be squeezed out. So in a roundabout way, Sam, I haven't got a direct answer for you right now. I just wanted to 
flesh that out so that listeners can understand the implications uh, of making a decision and looking far into the distance rather than the next five to 10 minutes. If we're sitting here or standing saying, okay, I haven't bought a property yet, but this is my 10-year plan, what would we do different to what maybe Sam has done? And no disrespect, Sam's got some awesome um, growth in the in the portfolio uh, or in the property and the purchase, have, has paid it down, et cetera. Um, what would I do different? Well, what we might consider doing differently is to actually not pay down too much of the property, still pay some principal and interest in the early years because it is your principal place of residence, uh, but we would park extra cash in the offset account until such time that we say, you know what, we're going to outgrow this property, we're going to take that cash from the offset, we're going to use that as a deposit and costs on that uh, second property, that upsizer that we need, we need more space, and then that first property becomes an investment, tax deductible, uh, we've taken the money from the offset, that doesn't impact as much because it's uh, tax deductible and, and we get that um, nice, hopefully juicy refund. The other option is to say, okay, can we buy now that's going to serve us for more than five years? We're going to start a family in the next five to 10 years. Let's buy a three-bedroom home. Let's have a backyard. Let's have the ability to have a home that will serve us for the next 10 years instead of the next five because property is a rigid beast. We don't want to continue to buy and sell because a lot of the profit gets um, soaked up by stamp duties and selling costs and things like that. So understand the next play before we transact on this first play. But unbelievable question, Sam. Thank you for that. And hopefully our listeners have got a little bit of a benefit from that. Daniel. How do you handle negative equity? When you invest in property, should you contemplate a second emergency fund, i.e. personal emergency fund for a job loss and an investment emergency buffer for whatever? Great question, Daniel. And I can see by his surname, long-time listener. Thank you for your support. So how do we handle negative equity? First of all, what is negative equity? Well, we bought something for 500000 In 12 months' time, we go back in to uh, maybe refinance or get some equity out to go and buy again and the property's worth 470,000 it's dropped 30,000 okay now regardless of the loan generally speaking banks won't come knocking on our door provided that we're continually making the repayments so don't lose sleep over that fact we we know that if we're continually keeping the banks happy each month that they'll leave us alone regardless of the of the value of the property at least with residential maybe different with agriculture and some commercial etc but in the residential space that's usually the case so that's basically negative equity is uh, is our value has dropped below our loan that we've got on that property so hopefully Daniel's not in that position but um if, if someone is out there, which which can happen from time to time, property is not guaranteed to succeed every year that you own it, what do we do? So first of all, we never want to be in a position where we have to sell. We should want to sell an asset when we want to, not when we have to, okay? So that leads to Daniel's second point about a emergency fund, right? We have emergency buffers in our in our personal life. So three months worth of cost to exist is, is what we talk about. Have we got the emergency buffer in our personal portfolio or our property portfolio? Yes, we definitely should have. And how do we calculate that? Generally, it's 12 months worth of running costs for that property 
and, and what it's going to cost us out of our pocket after the tenant has paid their rent. So for example, if we're getting $500 a week in, uh, that's $26,000 a year. We might factor two weeks of vacancies, so that drops it back to 25,000. The running cost of the property with interest only and insurances and rates, property management, it might be 30,000. So we've got a 5K shortfall that we should be buffering for. We should ideally have at least that 5K sitting there in an account separate dedicated to that particular property every year. Now we know that generally speaking as investors, property rents go up over time. So that buffer over time hopefully needs to be less and less. But in the first few years of building a portfolio, we are probably, in my experience, the hardest years that you'll experience because the yields might start a little lower uh, in, in search of growing your portfolio and having that approach where we want to build wealth um, until the rents start to catch up and the cash flow starts to come through a little bit more heavily and then we can relax a little bit. But we would always have some sort of emergency fund for your property portfolio and assess that per property. Don't look across the whole portfolio and say, this is what I need. Look at it per property and then we can really uh, get into the weeds and understand what each property is doing. So great question, Daniel. Let's take a break and then we'll come back with some more of your questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
the value will come out or they can do a desktop valuation, but depending on the condition of the house, if it's really, really good condition and newly renovated, I, w I would want the value to come out and assess what that is, but your broker can get a desktop valuation and that might be sufficient, if, especially if it's a buoyant market and they will assess what the value of the property they think it is. Now, that's one person's individual interpretation. I would, and have always done, got minimum three valuations from three different lenders. So my Westpac might have gone and got the one, that's come back at, a, at an amount, that's great. I would go and get my broker to order two more valuations, what might be one from, I don't know, ANZ, Macquarie, Newcastle, what, whatever it may be, right? Once we get those three valuations, you get a feel for what we think it is worth, but also the highest valuation sometimes allows us to pull more, more equity from that property to be able to borrow more money. When I say borrow more money, get more equity out of that property because of the value, the loan to value ratio being uh, less. Now, in terms of borrowing more money to buy the asset over and above the equity we've just released, Jack, that is a servicing thing. Right? Now you can say, look, I'm going to buy a property and it's going to yield at 8%. But until the bank sees evidence of this through a, a rental appraisal, et cetera, they're not going to really lend you too much more money. So serviceability is a personal thing, income versus expenses in your life, bad debts, et cetera. Um, but then leveraging the existing property is usually done through getting strategic valuations done, I think, and also the ability to add some value to existing properties. There might be some really cool ways that you can add some value without spending too much, but to the perceived eye, it brings the value of that property up, okay? The other part of it too, and this is why investors shouldn't be sitting on their hands for too long, the market sentiment definitely changes. So what's happening now in your local area might be very different to how agents and valuers and banks and everyone else was perceiving it 12 months ago or two years ago. So it's often wise to check in every six months and just get another valuation. or It might be just a desktop valuation just to see what the sentiment of the market is because that can be the difference between getting another deposit out to, uh, to buy another property and not, okay? So they're just some basic ways that we can look at maybe leveraging existing properties, but how do we leverage in general? It needs to be done through the equity that we've got in the property. And for, for first-time users, that's basically your value of your property minus your debt, and the difference is the equity. And the bank says, yeah, you can use some of that equity, not all of it, generally up to 80% of that you can access, provided that your servicing, i.e. your income versus your expenses, is suitable or strong enough to be able to take that out and then go and use it. Right, Nets has a really good question, and this is one for the developers or want-to-be developers out there. Nets says, how do I figure out what is the best type of development to put on my site? So many different things to take into account here, Nets. And as a, a developer myself or, or part-time developer or mum and dad developer, whatever you want to call us, uh, there's a lot of things that we need to, to really make sure we've got concrete answers to. And the first thing I would look at is 
what's demand in my area? What is going to sell at maybe a higher price than others because there's lack of this in my area? Now, when we did a development here locally on the Central Coast uh, in 2014, I believe, uh, we saw a real lack of two-storey townhouses, right? They, they wanted the, the high finish, they wanted a reasonable size, they wanted a low-maintenance backyard, they wanted a bedroom downstairs because maybe they were the, the elderly or getting into retirement, um, but they also wanted bedrooms upstairs because of um, family members staying over and things like that. So that's what we ended up doing. We put two townhouses on a block, we knocked the old house over and, and away we went. We had some consultation with a number of agents before we decided that. I actually didn't know that before I went and did that I got that information from local real estate agents. I talked to local builders. What are you building more of? What are you building less of? What's happened in the last 10 years? Um, what, what's the vacancy rates like? If there's high vacancies, what is that due to? And we've got to think conceptually, what do most people want in a home around the country? Generally speaking, they might want low maintenance, but they also probably need minimum two, but ideally three bedrooms. Why? Well, one for us, maybe one for a study uh, or to read the newspaper, and the third one might be for visitors that come over, right? For families, uh, that was for retirees, by the way. Uh, for, for families, we might have a couple of kids uh, and we might also work from home. So threes uh, as a minimum, I would say, with a, a backyard that's manageable. Uh, for singles, we might want someone else to, to live in there with us plus a study, right? This work from home thing's become real, right? So it's going to, there's, there's obviously a change in that now, but there's still going to be an element of work from home. So that need for that extra room is more and more important. So Nets, I'd be thinking about the, the internals in what we need and the layout involved in that. Okay. Um, again, going back to the development of 214, we looked at, could we put five or six units on, on the block instead of two large townhouses? Well, the demand for the area was more high spec because it was what we consider a more of a blue chip area. So to go and put six cheap and nasty two bedroom single level units on it just probably wasn't going to be as in demand as those two higher spec townhouses. Okay. So rightly or wrongly, we've got to look at what's in demand in the area. We've got to look at the total end value of that product and is there a little bit of emotional value in that product, i.e. will I pay an extra 50000 because it's there, it's done, it's got high finishes, it's perfect location, etc. Also looking at the block and its, and its configuration and talking to a town planner. So real estate agent, um, builders, and town planner at the council to see what are my regulations, what do I need to adhere to, uh, open space requirements, shadow diagrams, etc., and what can I potentially build, what's it zoned for, what's its width of the, the block, and then away I go and I can start to do some numbers. Once, and I'm, I'm passionate about this, so I'll expand on this, Nets, is once we've done that, we then look at a draftsperson or a architect to, to get some conceptual drawings done, um, based on what we think is going to be best. We get some builders to bring some quotes for those. And we're obviously talking in conjunction with the mortgage broker. So don't leave the mortgage broker to last or the borrowing capacity to last because generally, or sometimes what I see happening is we've, we've drawn these awesome plans. 
We've gone to Builder. Builder says, yeah, that's fantastic. That'll look great. It'll be great for the area. It's going to cost $1.5 million and I can go and only get a million dollars of lending, right? So then we go back to square one and we've wasted a whole lot of time and money. So get them all on the same page really early on and then we're clear and concise as to what we can and can't do. Thank you, Nets. All right, time for one more. It has been a bit of an investor type episode this one uh not too much owner rock stuff but that's that's cool um emily would have covered a bit more owner rock stuff because that's what she specializes in uh sasha how do you know when you're ready to go for an investment property what kind of spare income do you need is it a tax minimization thing i.e high income is it about available cash flow certain percentage or level of equity in ppor what kind of prerequisites do you suggest ah well, I could write a book on this, Sasha. Actually, I have, right? And uh, it's in the show notes. <laughs> Sasha, I, I jumped on a podcast last week about this. Um, also, probably the, the common misconception that we need to pay down our principal place of residence before we can actually go and start investing. Now, someone asked me not long ago, when do you know when the best time to invest is? And I'll say, when you're ready and when you can get finance, when you're ready in your own mind, you got the risk profile sorted and when you can go and get lending from the banks. So that might be your first starting point is, right, banks, what's the valuation of this property? What's the loan I've got? How much equity can I pull out? How much can I lend? Then we know that we've got a figure, uh, a peg in the sand that says, this is what I can actually handle as a borrowing capacity and I can go and do some shopping. The problem with that is, which is the common pathway, right? We jump on realestate.com and we say, yep, 600 is my price. I jump on and, and usually choose 600K in my area, become deflated, stay within my state because that's comfortable. So I check other other parts of the, 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 the state and locations and 600 doesn't maybe get me much or it does, but I'm not real comfortable. I've never been to that location. Oh, hang on. I went to holidays here. Let me check that area. No, that doesn't work. And I become deflated and then I either buy something irrationally or I just give up altogether. So Sasha and anyone else who's in this position, it's an awesome time to take advantage, I think, of getting into the market now or markets um, for the next five years of, of strong growth, I believe, right? This is early 2024 if you're listening back. So it's one thing to say I can borrow 600 or I can spend 600. It's another thing to say, Will it affect my lifestyle? Is the yield going to be too low? Is it going to be negatively geared? My accountant says I need to get some tax deductions. So I go and look for capital growth. I get it negatively geared. And then the first repayments come out. There's not as much rent coming in as I expected because I didn't get a rental appraisal. And all of a sudden, I'm $1,000 out of pocket each month. I haven't got a property investment buffer. And I'm now paying that $1,000 out of my future income bad, bad move. You're going to become very sick of this new investment property very quickly. And there's a good chance that someone like myself will come and snap it off you at a reduced price. The problem there is we didn't do our research. So Sasha's saying, how do I do my research, John? Well, all of these things go hand in glove. We need to know what we can handle from a yield perspective and a cash flow in our life, we need to have buffers for our property portfolio. And I spoke about that before. We need to know what 
is going to enhance our life, not detract from it, not detract. You shouldn't be using your future income or a large portion of it to prop up your portfolio. If you're doing that, it does detract from your future savings. If you've got a mortgage to pay at home as well or rents continually increasing, that's going to diminish. Now, yes, rents will go up over time, but a lot of investors don't get past that first property because of this reason. It's lack of cash flow. And as a result, the property is to blame. Okay. The property is not to blame. It was the research behind it before we went there. Okay. Um, went off on a bit of a tangent there, but what Sasha says, what kind of spare income do we need? Well, you work that out in your life. We know that there might be 30% roughly of your own money going to your mortgage or to your rent. Okay, what else is left over each month? If I'm saving two grand a month, can I put 500 a month or or 1,000 a month to this particular property? If I'm getting equity out of my principal place of residence, can I take an extra 10 grand of equity to use as my property buffer? And then I don't have to touch my future income at all and I continue going on my savings journey. All right. Is it a tax minimization thing? Yes. If you've got a high income, there's a, there's a strong argument to say you should be helping that out, but it's not the number one reason we go and buy real estate. Okay, Real estate's about wealth creation and, and, and making money, not necessarily saving money. Is it about available cash flow? Well, absolutely it is. The certain percentage of level of equity in your PPOR. So banks are ultra, ultra friendly at the moment. We can go and get 5% deposits to buy our first home, right? That was never around when I first started investing all those years ago. A lot of occupations, 10% deposit, no LMI. So you, Sasha, you might qualify for one of those. Chat to your broker about this. You might be able to get equity out of your principal place of residence when your loan to value ratio is 80% and you draw it back up to 90%. You take out that 10% and go and buy an investment property, right? You've got to understand that the next best time to buy is when you're ready and when you've got available funds, that being cash or equity as a deposit, and then the bank's ability to lend you money. Hopefully that helps you there. All right. uh, Let me quickly answer one more. Tammy, can one be added to a mortgage on a property without capital gains tax implications for the other owner? I'm going to answer this by saying, talk to a lawyer, a solicitor about that. That's a very easy one for me uh, because changing titles, changing ownerships, changing all these things usually require costings and the angle at which you approach it can mean sometimes savings, can mean sometimes I've paid too much, I shouldn't have done that and it's too late to untangle. Ideally, we're doing the right thing on the way in, not halfway through ownership of the property. Um, But the whole capital gains tax implications, the ATO are onto you about that. So if they can see that, hang on a minute, we've changed the entity halfway through uh, just to avoid capital gains tax, then yeah, they're probably going to find that out, understand why you've done that and there's implications to that decision. All right, that's a wrap for today, people. Thank you for allowing me into your ears once again. Uh, Thanks for your unreal support over the journey. Glenn and I were chatting the other day, like it's been something like six years or something since we've started this thing and, and 
we're even more motivated than we have ever been. We gave it 12 months. It's, uh, it's definitely done that. Uh, if it wasn't working, we wouldn't be here. So thanks for those people who have been here for from the start of time in our journey. As I mentioned before, the, the shameless plug about the book, we're on tour in March. Uh, so there may be some tickets left when while you're listening to this, but if not, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes for the purchasing of the book. Um, we're pretty excited about it. Why I did it was 25 years worth of mistakes and, and wins uh, all compiled into one book. And if I was starting again, I would want, I, I basically put into this book what I would want to read and what I, what I would want to get out of it so I can fast track my investment journey. There's so much fluff and noise online that we're actually too informed these days and we're going around in circles and we don't know what to do when there's ultra confusion. So absolutely grab yourself a copy of this or, or buy it as a gift for a friend and um, spread the good word. If anyone's out there looking for an investment property, need a strategy, need a, need a shoulder to uh, to lean on or just want us to do, uh, do the work for you, then uh, yeah, reach out to envisageproperty.com.au we work in WA, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, so majority of them, and we do monitor over 100 property markets around the country. So we've got a pretty good idea as to what is happening on a regular basis. I'm John Pigeon, and you've been listening to This Is Property. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to this podcast. It's time to get the property you want. If buying your first home or investing in property is something you're interested in, check out John Pigeon's book, Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future. John covers the essentials like how to find hotspots and not spots, due diligence, mortgages, tax stuff, grants and schemes and how to set up your investing timeline. It's the only book you'll need about buying and investing in property. Visit sortyourpropertyout.com to grab your copy. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 